Welcome to Across Acoustics, the official podcast of the Acoustical Society of America's Publications Office. On this podcast, we will highlight research from our four publications. I'm your host, Kat Setzer, Editorial Associate for the ASA. If you've been paying attention to the news lately, you may have heard about today's guest and his research regarding NASA's Artemis One launch. Kent Gee of Brigham Young University was able to record the launch noise of NASA's space launch system, the world's most powerful rocket that has been successfully launched. He published his findings with a host of co-authors in the March 2023 issue of Jazz Express Letters in the article, Space Launch System Acoustics, Far Field Noise Measurements of the Artemis One Launch, which we'll be talking about with him today. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today, Kent. How are you? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Love talking about rockets. (laughs) I'm excited to have you talk about rockets. So first, just tell us a bit about yourself and your research background. I am a professor of physics, and I'm also the chair of the Department of Physics and Astronomy at BYU. We have a strong emphasis of acoustics for both graduates and undergraduate students. And I've been studying the acoustics of loud sound sources for like 20 years now, from military aircraft to explosions to gunshot to rockets and volcanoes. And so... We study the sources, we study the characteristics of the noise, and we study, in some cases, the impacts of of the noise. So when we were preparing for this episode, you gave some backstory about how the research project came about and why there are 11 authors on this paper. Can you tell us a bit about the development of this project? Absolutely. The project came about to make measurements, right, of the Artemis One launch of of the space launch system, came about as sort of this wild idea. Can we take a team of undergraduate students and give them a world-class, once-in-a-lifetime, you know, experiential learning opportunity? And we worked with the Utah NASA Space Grant Consortium that was excited to fund a a trip down to Kennedy Space Center with our equipment. We talked to BYU, got Rollins College involved, Dr. Whitney Coyle at Rollins College, because they were down in Florida, so they were close to the action. And so we ended up with three faculty members and eight students that were involved in this, six undergraduates and two graduate students at BYU that were involved in the launch measurements. And so that's the reason for so many authors. And uh, it really came out of the opportunity to provide students with just an incredible experience to go take these kinds of data. That's such an awesome opportunity for the students. Okay, so probably not a simple question to answer, but can you give us a bit of background about rocket launch acoustics in general? What causes it? Why do we care about it? That kind of thing. How long do you have? (laughs) We can talk all day about this, but um, to be hopefully straightforward, right? So inside a rocket engine, right, it's the fuel propellant tanks, right? They have stored chemical potential energy, right? And so you convert that to the kinetic energy of the plume, right? So now you have this high speed exhaust plume that's coming out the back of the rocket, which is providing the thrust. Well, we talk about often the mechanical power provided by the rocket plume. That's which is related to its thrust and, and the plume velocity. So when we talk about that kind of power, for the largest launches, that's like in the tens of gigawatts, 45 gigawatts for the Saturn V. A gigawatt is, a, just for reference, that's a billion watts, right? So you're talking about 45 
billion watts of power that are being generated by this plume. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, only a tiny fraction of that, less than 1% on the order of a half a percent, but less than 1% of that power turns into sound. Mm. With that much mechanical power being generated, even a tiny fraction of it being turned into sound turns into a lot of sound. Yeah. Right. Right. That the Saturn V produced on the order between 200 and 250 megawatts of sound power. Now, why do we care? We care about the sound generated by rockets because of their potential impacts. The sound from a rocket is so extreme that it can damage the payload. It can damage the rocket itself. It can damage critical launch structures surrounding the rocket pad. As you move farther out, it can have impacts on wildlife. Rocket launch complexes often double as wildlife preserves. Mm. And then, of course, as you move even farther out, then you have the communities. What are the noise impacts at communities? What are the rumble, the crackle, the different sound qualities associated with rocket launches? How do they impact sleep? How do they impact people's annoyance? How do they disturb people's day-to-day activities? We don't have great answers to these questions. And so that's why we're trying to study them. Okay. Yeah, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. So you talk a little bit about Saturn V already. In this article, you referenced one of your past articles where you talk about how there were all these misconceptions about the noise created by Saturn V back in 1969. Some people claim that it could melt concrete or set grass on fire over a mile away. And your article talked about how that's not true. Where do these misconceptions come from? Where do any internet misconceptions come from, I think, <laughs> is, the, uh, is the question here. But we're not entirely certain. But I think it honestly, what happens is that one person makes a claim, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody told a story, and then the next thing you know, you have this game of internet telephone going on where one person says it, the next person says it, and then all of a sudden, people start citing that as fact. And so when we read this, we were just astounded that people all over the internet on these forums like Reddit and Quora were talking about these incredible claims about the Saturn V. And so the the misconceptions themselves, we're not sure of the origin, but ultimately they're founded in the misunderstanding of, of fundamental physics. They just don't understand that these kinds of sounds are not humanly possible. A sound that could cause fire, a sound that can... Uh, that can melt concrete, uh, you're talking about sound energy that's well beyond our ability to produce it. Okay, got it. To get back to your recent article, how is your current research meant to prevent these types of misunderstandings? Our research is founded in the idea of taking high quality measurements from different static rocket firings and different space vehicle launches, and then using those measurements to develop physics-based models for how much sound is produced, what is the spectral frequency content of the noise that's produced, what are its waveform or temporal characteristics right, of that noise, and then how does that noise travel out to the receiver? And finally, then, how does the receiver perceive, observe, the, you know, react to that noise? And so there's There's these fundamental ideas of source propagation receiver in noise and noise control. And we are trying to tackle all aspects of that problem by starting with collecting high quality data. Absolutely makes sense. Yeah. 
In this recent article, you are talking about the noise generated by NASA's space launch system, which launched the Artemis One mission, which is a super heavy lift vehicle. What are super heavy lift vehicles? Aren't all rockets super heavy? That is a great question. And, you know, a few years ago, I honestly couldn't have answered that question because I was learning myself more about these rockets and different classifications of rockets. They classify rockets by their ability to lift different masses of uh, payloads into orbit. And so a super heavy lift rocket is able to launch at least 50 metric tons or a little about about 110,000 pounds, 50 metric tons into lower Earth orbit. And so the space launch system can actually launch almost double that, almost 100 metric tons into lower Earth orbit. And believe it or not, the current version of SLS can launch something like 26 metric tons all the way to the moon. Oh, wow. It's a, a lot of power, a lot of power in this rocket. Yeah. It's like, can't even quite quantify how much that is. Like, how many elephants would that be? We'd have to look it up. I mean, I started thinking how many, you know, pickup trucks, how many, you know, of this. It's amazing how much they're able to lift with this, right? And so, you know, more common rocket like the Falcon 9, Mm -hmm. it's a medium lift rocket and in in its ability to get uh, payloads into orbit. So SLS is just... It's, its ability to launch a payload into orbit. It's just absolutely incredible. But then when you get close to the rocket and you look at how many stories, right? Something like, what is it? 312 feet or something like that. Around 300 feet tall. You realize just how enormous this is. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then by itself, you have this incredible feeling of looking at this going, how is this, you know, 20... 28-story building or 26-story building able to go up into space. The rocket by itself, you just it's hard to believe that that is going to go up into space. Right, yeah. How can that go up in the air and stay up in the air, <laughs> right? Yeah, but that gives you an appreciation for just how powerful these rockets are. Right. That they are able to not only get themselves, but a massive payload up into orbit. So this is a good segue. How does the use of the space launch system compare to previous rocket launches? The space launch system is based around the Artemis program. The Artemis program is designed to take humankind back to the moon, right? To land the first woman and person of color on the the lunar surface. And that will happen with the Artemis mission. The Artemis 1 was uncrewed. The Artemis 2 will be crewed around the moon, right? So launching astronauts all the way back to the moon. And it's with Artemis 3 will should be the first mission that should land people back on the moon. That's exciting. It is absolutely exciting. And so the Artemis program, and then there are different versions of the rocket beyond that, that are being developed to eventually establish a permanent lunar colony. Oh, neat. Just like in the sci-fi novels. We are absolutely in a sci-fi era. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. It's incredible how little attention people are paying to these incredible things that are going on at NASA, at SpaceX, and just around the world, around the world in terms of the ability and the interest in creating a new space age that's just unlike anything the world's ever seen. Yeah. So one of the cool aspects of this launch that you discuss in this article is how the atmosphere and timing allowed for visualization of the pressure waves during liftoff. Can you describe this? And how do the pressure waves relate to the noise created? Because the Artemis 1 launch was a nighttime launch, the 
launch pad was lit up by bright lights. Mm-hmm. And because of the intensity of the waves and combined with the humidity of the atmosphere, as these intense pressure condensations, but actually more importantly, the rarefactions were produced, the rarefactions actually, or the, the drops in the local pressure due to the sound wave, right? As the local pressure dropped, it dropped below the vapor pressure of the atmosphere mm. and resulted in cloud formation. So you could see the pressure waves through the rarefactions, the decreases in local atmospheric pressure, you could see them through very rapid, visible, moving cloud formation. Oh, that's nifty. And so those clouds that you're seeing there are, in fact, the pressure waves that are formed at the launch pad by the acoustics of the rocket. That's so cool. So how did you measure the acoustics of the Artemis 1 launch? With great difficulty. (laughs) No, we set up our equipment. We have equipment that we've developed that's weather robust, that can withstand rainstorms and wind and everything. And we have weather robust, hardened equipment that we're able to set out there. And then it triggers either on time or at, with the amplitude of the liftoff. So it can all be done unmanned, right? Autonomous recording systems that are able to make these measurements. And so we set out our equipment at 10 different locations around Kennedy Space Center. And we set up for the first launch attempts at the end of August. And of course, there were some challenges and it didn't launch the first time. And then, of course, there were two hurricanes that went through. We did take our equipment down in between, but then we set back up for the November attempts and were able to collect our data at 10 different stations on center, as well as between BYU and Rollins College students, we were able to make recordings at manned stations outside of Kennedy Space Center at several different additional locations. Very cool. So how are far field measurements used compared to near field measurements? When we talk about far field, right, we're talking about being far enough away from the rocket that you almost consider it to be this point source, right? You're far enough that it seems that it's small. Okay. Near field though, Right. When you're in the near field, you have this microphone and you have this enormous rocket, and this enormous plume, and you're trying to understand what's happening right at the rocket, right at the launch pad. Our measurements out of logistical necessity to be able to participate in the Artemis 1 launch, our measurements were required to be in the far field, or at least our closest we were at was one and a half kilometers away. So about a mile away, which it seems like it's really far, but with a rocket that tall, it turned out that it still felt pretty close. The idea is that if you can collect data in the far field, and if you understand the physics of what's going on, it helps you understand what's happening closer to the rocket. For example, one of the major analyses we're trying to complete is how much sound power does the space launch system generate? Now, that's not in the first article, and we still don't have that answer yet. We're working with NASA to get the required trajectory data to be able to produce that answer. But once we know how much sound power that SLS is producing, that's something that the people that care about that's happening at the launch pad, they can take that as a direct input to their model. Okay. So how loud is the Artemis 1 launch? That is a nuanced question. How loud is it? That's the great question, right? That's the million dollar question, right? And in the sense of everyone wants to know how loud it is. But in acoustics, of course, it's a difficult thing to answer because loudness is not sound level, right? What we perceive as something as being a certain loudness depends on its frequency content and its amplitude. And so 
that is actually a question that we're not really able to answer directly is how loud it is. But I can tell you about the sound levels mm-hmm. at one and a half kilometers away. It was approximately the maximum level that we measured during liftoff was around 136 decibels, right? 136 dB. Like that's kind of like the sounds that you'd associate with a jet takeoff, right? But you're a mile away. <laughs> a mile away. <laughs> 136 dB. In addition, right? So five kilometers away, it was around 128, 129 dB. So three miles, five kilometers away, right? We talk about it being in, in the high 120 dB range. But to put that in perspective, right? And, and, and I reused that five kilometers because people were actually standing around those distances. The media were allowed to be at those kind of distances. Okay. So 128 dB was the maximum level of 128 or 129 dB at five kilometers. Well, at five kilometers, then you can say, well, let's at least do the human weighted or the A weighted sound level calculation. Mm -hmm. Well, we did that in our paper and we said, well, even though we're not sure that that really corresponds to human perception for a rocket, right? We we calculated the A weighted levels and it was about 106 dB. Now, 106 dB is like the sound levels you would associate with you operating a chainsaw, right? Or or the... And that's three miles away. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to provide at least some sense of what you might have experienced or the average levels of a rock concert. But what makes it so different is that you're standing three miles away, right? Now, I wasn't that close. I was a little much farther away, but I know what the people heard and what they felt. They felt this enormous rumble, this roar that passed through their bodies because the dominant frequencies present in that launch we're somewhere around 20 hertz, which is the low end of the human threshold of hearing, right? Okay. You're feeling it. You're hearing this rumble, this roar, and it's going through you. But on top of that, it's this broadband signal that you also are hearing this intense popping and crackling and snapping. Mm. And that crackle, right, is the result of these pressure discontinuities or shocks that we talk about in the waveform. Okay. And those shocks present this enormous impact, this load on your ear. It's very intense, pop, 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 that you're feeling and hearing all at the same time. So in the article, we even made mention of, you know, another thing that crackles, which was Rice Krispies. And we said that five miles away, right. somebody, I didn't do it, but somebody measured the A-weighted sound level of a bowl of Rice Krispies. <laughs> Love the description, right? To which milk has been freshly poured, right? <laughs> and, and most people have had a bowl of Rice Krispies and heard that, you know, five kilometers away, it's like you're experiencing surrounded by 40 million bowls of Rice Krispies just sitting there. <laughs> and, I, and people are like, you know, on, and online, of course, Reddit and Quora, people are like, they've noticed this. They're like, we should go measure a swimming pool full of Rice Krispies, pour milk into it. And I, I, and I invite those kinds of comparisons, right? Because we're trying to get right. It's so hard to describe what you actually experience with a rocket that we try to connect it to other things. But having been there, it is so hard to even express the feeling and the sound because it's unlike anything else you've ever heard in your life. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds almost kind of surreal in a way. It is absolutely surreal. And so, or serial. (laughs) (laughs) Good pun. (laughs) Well played. It's It's what we do, right? People actually asked me why we included the comparison of the Rice Krispies 
there. And I said, well, you know, the chainsaw and the rock concert is one thing. The Rice Krispies was to give a sense of that sound quality of the crackle because not a lot of things crackle. But honestly, it was an effort to inject a little bit of humor, right? I believe in humor. Right. Anytime we can inject a little humor into our science, it humanizes the experience, right, of our research. And I, I like doing that. I appreciate that. Yeah. So what can you do with this information that you gained from your measurements? That's an excellent question. One that's very timely. Just before this podcast, I was just on the phone with NASA this morning, and we were talking about what we can do with our analyses and how they hope to take the information that we're learning and use to improve the models that they have for the Space Launch System rocket. So we hope to use our data to understand what's happening not only far away from the rocket, extrapolate outwards to say, well, what's happening with the wildlife? What's happening with communities? What's happening at different structures that may be sensitive to vibrations? But we also want to extrapolate inward and say, what's happening at the launch pad? What's happening near the rocket? And once we have this information, they can input that into models and say, well, how good are our models and where can we improve them? Because this is not the only SLS rocket, right? They call this SLS block one, and then there's going to be block two and block two cargo. The rockets are going to get progressively larger. And as they get larger, they will be more powerful. And as they're more powerful, they will be, they should be louder based on the physics. And so the information that we are gaining now is critical to the development of better models of the impacts of these larger SLS rockets. What are the next steps in your research? We are working with NASA to get the rest of the required data that we need to finish our analyses. We eventually hope to answer the question that everyone has been asking me, how does SLS compare to the Saturn V? How will it compare? to SpaceX's Starship? These are questions that we don't really have the answer to yet. But we, as we continue to analyze the data, we will be able to answer those kinds of questions, at least to the ability that we're able to understand what really happened with the Saturn V back in the 1960s. But beyond that, we are trying to understand the source. We're trying to understand aspects of the propagation. And then we are also trying to understand the impacts at the receivers. And so source propagation receiver is all part of our next steps and plans for what we can do with the data. Awesome. Do you have any closing thoughts? This was an amazing opportunity to be able to make these kinds of measurements with, with NASA and to be able to be at Kennedy Space Center, to be able to watch the largest rocket launch ever, right? Successful rocket launch ever. And to watch this go up to space. And it was such an experience for not only the students, but for myself and honestly, one of the greatest acoustical research experiences, if not the greatest of my entire life and career. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to participate in such a historic event. Yeah, that is so cool. And it sounds like it was such a, a great experience for you. And like you said, for your students. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me today about it and shed some light on rocket noise for our listeners, you know, as much as we can understand it without experiencing it. It sounds like there's still a lot to learn. And I look forward to seeing where your future research takes you. Thanks, Kat. Thank you for tuning into Across Acoustics. If you'd like to hear more interviews from our authors about their research, please subscribe and find us on your preferred podcast platform. 